Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, there will be another Le Chauversation. <laughs> that is an ugly word. It is a remarkably ugly portmanteau. And it's even uglier when it's said right next to portmanteau. That's a rabbit hole I could go down for another few minutes. But no, there will be another Le Show conversation, as promised, moments from now. But first, a couple of things that uh, may have escaped both your and my notice up to now. First, news from outside the bubble. Well, that nutty old CIA seems to be full of shutterbugs. Or, at the very least, Instagram followers. They, they took, it turns out, naked photographs of people it sent to its foreign partners for torture. This according to The Guardian. A former U.S. official who had seen some of the photographs described them as, quote, very gruesome, unquote. The naked imagery of CIA captives raises new questions about the seeming willingness of the United States to engage in what one medical and human rights expert called, quote, sexual humiliation. Remember the old Marvin Gaye song by that name in its post-9-11 captivity of terrorism suspects. Some human rights campaigners described the act of naked photography on unwilling detainees as a potential war crime. Unlike the video evidence of CIA torture at its undocumented black site prisons that were destroyed in 2005, the pr not the prisons, the photographs, by a senior official, Jose Rodriguez, we remember you, Jose, the CIA is said to retain the naked photographs of the detainees held for extraordinary rendition. In some of the photos, which remain classified, CIA, CIA captives are blindfolded, bound, and show visible bruises. That could happen to anybody. Some photographs also show people believed to be CIA officials or contractors alongside the naked detainees, just to show how clothed people look by comparison. It's not publicly known how many people were caught in the CIA's web of extraordinary renditions. Human rights groups over the years have identified at least 50, going back to Bill Clinton's presidency. It's also unclear how many of those rendition targets the CIA photographed naked. The rationale for the naked photography, if there, you need one, was to insulate the CIA from legal or political ramifications stemming from their forthcoming brutal treatment in the hands of its partner intelligence agencies, even though the State Department had gotten pro forma assurances that the detainees to be rendered would not be tortured. But, you know, CIA lawyers don't necessarily trust the State Department. Stripping the victims of clothing was considered necessary to document the physical condition while in CIA custody, distinguishing them from what they would subsequently experience in foreign custody. You know, when the Syrians or the Egyptians were through with them. Picture is worth a thousand words, ladies and gentlemen. Especially when they're taken by the CIA. I wonder if, uh, you know, they used like a real camera or an iPhone. Could we hack the CIA? Could the FBI hack the CIA's iPhone and get the pictures? News from outside the bubble, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast, and now news of the warm, won't you? You're soaking in it. Soft, listen to the warm. We can listen.
aerial surveys of Australia's Great Barrier Reef show it's not such a Great Barrier Reef anymore. They've revealed the worst bleaching on record in the pristine north of the iconic site, scientists said, with few corals escaping damage. Worse bleaching than in a Beverly Hills salon. Researchers said the view was devastating after surveying some 520 reefs by a plane and helicopter between Cairns and the Torres Strait north of Queensland. This will change the Great Barrier Reef forever, said an expert on coral reefs from James Cook University. We're seeing huge levels of bleaching in the northern 1,000-kilometer stretch of the Great Barrier Reef. The Australian government recently revealed bleaching at the World Heritage-listed site was severe, but noted the southern area had escaped the worst. Bleaching occurs when abnormal environmental conditions such as, oh, you know, warmer sea temperatures cause corals to expel tiny photosynthetic algae, draining them of their color. The uh, expert agreed in a statement that the southern reef had dodged a bullet due to cloudy weather, but he said the far north, the most remote and pristine areas, almost without exception, experienced bleaching of a very high, consistently high level at every reef. Only four reefs in 4,000 kilometers had no bleaching. The severity is much greater than in earlier bleaching events in 2002 or 1998, he said. More surveys that are followed. The damage seen from the air in the north was severe falling into the highest category of level 4, meaning 60% of the coral was bleached. It's too early to know how many of the corals will die. They can recover if the water temperature drops and the algae are able to recolonize them. But abnormally high temperatures are expected to continue in the northern reaches of the reef through at least uh, the middle of April. The Great Barrier Reef is under pressure from the threat of climate change as well as farming runoff, development, and the coral-eating crown of thorns starfish. Well, you know what? Let's go kill the starfish, because that's the easy... It uh, narrowly avoided being put on the UN World Heritage in Danger list last year, did the Great Barrier Reef. But this, ladies and gentlemen, is another year. News of the Warm, a copyrighted feature of Hello, Welcome to the Show.
This is the show, and uh, a person might be excused watching what's been going on the last few years uh, for thinking that we're trapped in a um, endlessly looping film regarding America's involvement in military adventures overseas. It seems, if you've been paying attention for a while, that uh, the front end of these things sounds the same and the back end of these things sounds the same uh, eerily so and uh so i've invited to be on my show today uh a man who's been writing a series of books about the relationship of the american military to the american society and has just come out with one which attempts to chronicle uh in historical context um the last 40 or so years of uh this nation's adventures in uh, the greater Middle East. Uh, he's Professor Andrew Basevich, formerly from Boston University, and now a, a, a full-time author. And uh, as I say, America's War for the Greater Middle East is his uh, military history is his latest book. Um, but before we get into that, uh, Professor Basevich, I wanted to, I, I'd read your previous book, uh, Breach of Trust, which was about the relationship of the American military to American society. And since you spent some considerable amount of time in the American military. I, th- I thought you came at this from a very interesting perspective. So uh, I- if you can talk a little bit about how that relationship has evolved in the last few decades. Well, I think that uh, the uh, the rhetoric of supporting the troops, uh, which commands a unanimous assent uh, and which provides the basis for all sorts of uh, I think superficial displays, uh, testimonials to our affection for the troops, that all that's essentially uh, fraudulent. Uh, that uh, were, were the American people to genuinely care about the well-being of those who serve in uniform, then the American people would attend much more carefully to what the authorities in Washington uh, send our soldiers off to do. Uh, and to my way of thinking, particularly in the greater Middle East over the last three plus uh, decades, we have sent our soldiers off on what has come to be an exercise in futility. Uh, and they have paid dearly, their families have paid dearly uh, for for next to nothing in return. So my hope would be that uh, at some point, the American people would recognize the futility of that exercise and, and would 
would would continue to support the troops, but now begin to do it in a substantive way. Okay, in in your new book, uh, you draw some fairly profound lines between how this all started and where we're where we've ended up, and uh, you talk about the initiative by Zbigniew Brzezinski, uh, President Carter's national security advisor, uh, his his desire to draw the the Soviets into Afghanistan. Um, what was all that about? Why was he trying to draw the Soviets into Afghanistan? Well, if I could provide just a little bit more context yeah. in, in answering answering the question. So, so my new book uh, purports to be a history, albeit a very preliminary history, a history of an event that's still un- unfolding, a history of a of a three-plus long decades American war in the greater Middle East, in the Islamic world. When that war began, and I dated from 1980 with the uh, promulgation of the Carter Doctrine in uh, January of that year, when it began, there was another war ongoing, and that was the Cold War. Uh, this, this contest between the United States and the Soviet Union or the West and the Communist bloc centered on Europe uh, to see which of those two uh, politically, ideologically, would emerge triumphant. In the context of that war, uh, in 1979, Brzezinski, then the National Security Advisor to President Carter, uh, Brzezinski and members of his staff came up with what they thought was a brilliant idea. <laughs> and the brilliant idea was to suck the Soviet Union into an Afghanistan intervention that Brzezinski and his colleagues hoped would become the for the Soviets, their equivalent of Vietnam, uh, and and indeed that occurred, and and viewed in the context of the Cold War, the this Afghanistan war that we promoted uh, was a great success, because clearly in retrospect that was one of the things that ended up bringing the Soviet Union down. The problem is that at that same time, the war for the Greater Middle East was beginning. And the intervention in Afghanistan that we helped to promote and that we then fueled uh, with billions of dollars of, of weapons turned out to be a, a catastrophe for all involved. How how exactly did Brzezinski propose to suck the Soviets into Afghanistan? What was the what was the tactic? To 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 provide support. Uh, I mean, to get to the sort of the rubber where the rubber meets the road mm-hmm. to provide weapons to Afghan militants who were opposed to the intrusion of the Soviet Union into Afghan affairs. Uh, by, by December of 1979, uh, that resulted in this effort to lure in the Soviets. December of 1979, the Soviets invaded and occupied Afghanistan and then spent the next decade trying to pacify Afghanistan, much as we have spent the last what is it now seventeen years uh, or sixteen years trying to trying to pacify Afghanistan? Uh, so so we lured in the Soviets, uh, and and the Soviets paid dearly a a Cold War victory, but in the context of the war for the Greater Middle East, really the beginning of a line of 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 great sorrows uh, for which we must hold ourselves uh, responsible. You quote Ronald Reagan as. Uh calling the insurgents in Afghanistan, quote, noble savages in some sort of a state of pro- uh, purity fighting for an abstract idea of freedom. They weren't fighting for an abstract idea of freedom. They were fighting 
for precisely the same reason that the Taliban has been resisting the United States uh, for low these many years, and that is to get outsiders out so that Afghans can be responsible for running their own society the way they want to, granted that the way they want to run Afghan society is at very radically at odds with what, what we would view as enlightened values. So, uh, and and I think many of us know that um, one of the people involved in uh, mobilizing uh, the Afghan insurgency was a gentleman by the name of Osama bin Laden. Who, when the Soviets ultimately withdrew in 1989, came to the conclusion that waging jihad against outside so-called great powers could, could end in victory. So to some considerable extent, uh, the, the jihadist success against the Soviets in Afghanistan uh, persuaded them that they, got, they could enjoy success against other powers. Now, to quickly go to the next sort of phase of the story as it unfolds, mm-hmm. is, it, is it during the 1980s, at the same time that we're supporting the Soviets, excuse me, opposing the Soviets in Afghanistan, we are supporting the dictator who governs Iraq, a guy named Saddam Hussein. Heard of him. Americans have totally forgotten the fact that from 1980 to 1988, a, an immense, destructive, murderous war between Iran and Iraq uh, filled that decade. A war begun by Saddam Hussein as a war of aggression. And, and Americans might think, well, gosh, Saddam, we've always known Saddam Hussein's a bas- bad guy. Maybe so, but the Reagan administration supported Saddam indirectly and directly, to the point that we, we, we were engaged in what is yet another forgotten war, a shooting war with Iran in the latter part of the 1980s. Well, that war finally ends. It ends with Saddam out of money, uh, but not out of ambition. And virtually as soon as the, as the Iran-Iraq war ends, he decides to go invade uh, Kuwait. It happens in August of 1990. We respond. Suddenly now Saddam is our enemy. We liberate Kuwait. But unfortunately, that war, what I call the second Gulf War, the first one being 1980-1988, the second Gulf War seems to end in a decisive victory that turns out not to be decisive. It's not decisive because Saddam Hussein survives. And so the United States then, after 1991, nobody in the United States is paying attention begins to garrison on a permanent basis the the Persian Gulf to include specifically maintaining substantial U.S. forces in Saudi Arabia, the land of the two holy places. So here we have, from, from bin Laden's perspective, infidels occupying this sacred space, and, and that presence of the United States aimed at containing Saddam now becomes one of the major sources of uh, inspiring al-Qaeda and setting in train the sequence of events that, of course, leads to to 9-11. It's an immense amount of blundering caused by by many things, but caused in particular by an absence of clarity on the part of U.S. policymakers about what they were trying to do and who they were up against. You draw this back to the uh, beginning of the 1980s and uh, the promulgation of the Carter Doctrine, uh, that, that, that when the U.S. began garrisoning uh, large uh, amounts of military uh, personnel and equipment in Saudi Arabia, this, this was the culmination of the Carter Doctrine. What was the Carter Doctrine? Well, 
uh, again, just to give a little bit more uh, historical context here, if we look at the post-war period, the Cold War, uh, the U.S. has chosen, for the first time in its history, uh, after 1945, to maintain on a permanent basis very substantial military power. We choose to become a military superpower. But in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, the, the focus of strategic attention is on the defense of Western Europe and the defense of East Asia. Those are the two places that we're willing to fight. During that entire period of time, minimal, minimal U.S. presence anywhere in the Islamic world because we don't care that much about the, about the Persian Gulf, uh, 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 Central Asia, and, and the like. That changes in 1979 as a result of two events. The first event is the overthrow of the Shah, and the second event is the one I already alluded to, which was this, the, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Those two put together then inspire Jimmy Carter, who, who in January of 1980, desperately hoping to win a second term, but being viewed as a weak and ineffective president, inspire him in January of 1980 to promulgate the Carter Doctrine, which is a specific statement that now defines the Persian Gulf as a vital U.S. national security interest. And what that means is that's a place we are willing to fight for, just as we were then willing to fight for Western Europe or fight for uh, Korea and, uh, and Japan. So that statement then puts in motion what becomes a, a, a process of militarizing U.S. policy, step-by-step, step, larger presence, greater willingness to intervene in conflicts large and small, uh, brief and protracted, leading us up to where we are today, which I think, uh, and many people, I think, define as, in essence, a state of, of permanent war. War has become a normal condition. Nobody expects that the war in which we are engaged, whatever you want to call it, if you don't want to call it the war for the greater Middle East, nobody expects that that war is going to end anytime soon. Indeed, I would argue that nobody in Washington has a clue about how to end that war. Jimmy Carter didn't uh, just put on a blindfold and, and, and poke at the Persian Gulf no. with a pin out of uh, sheer randomness. That had followed the uh, the oil shock of the early 1970s, yes. right? And this was a, a purported response to that. It was. And, and uh, one, one of the, the tragic elements of this story is that, that Carter himself did not wish to embark upon this, this military course of action. Uh, it's a very famous speech worth worth reading, uh, that he made in the summer of 1979. It's called his Malay's speech. It's an utterly inappropriate name to stick to it. But Carter goes on national TV, and in the context of this, of this you know, real concern about the American way of life somehow being threatened because we no longer have guaranteed access to plentiful supplies, uh, supplies of oil, he goes, he goes on national television. He says, my fellow Americans, maybe the problem here is not that we don't have enough oil, Maybe the problem here is that we have bought into what is a false understanding of freedom. We've, we've gone down the wrong path. We've become selfish. We've become materialistic. We have forfeited the values that, in his opinion, uh, initially made America great. And so what, what Carter was saying is, let's take on this challenge of an energy shortage by changing the way we live. Let's opt for virtue rather than for selfishness and materialism. Of course, I mean, the, the, this had no 
no appeal to the American people. Doesn't even sound you know, good to me now. <laughs> well, you're right. You know, here, I got a good idea. I want you to sacrifice. Yeah. And Americans are not, we don't look to our politicians to say, call on us to sacrifice, except in some certain circumstances like World War II. We want the politicians to say, there is going to be more tomorrow. And, and so Carter's attempt to avoid going down this path uh, was derided. And I think basically the Carter Doctrine speech of January 1980 was a, a concession of defeat. Uh, on his part. The only way he thought he might have a chance to beat Reagan uh, in the upcoming election was to was to get tough. Uh, and so without, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that Carter had zero understanding of exactly what was going to evolve over the following decades, but he let loose the dogs of war. Uh, just as a, a historical footnote, uh, the U.S. did have w- one moment when it, it took some interest in the Persian Gulf area prior to then because uh, the CIA overthrew the democratically elected government of Iran in 1953, right? Fair enough. Yeah. Fair, fair enough. I mean, uh, that, that, that it, when I, I, I overstated the point saying we didn't care. Yeah. We, did, we didn't care enough to have that be a place that we were going to invest military power in doesn't mean that we were not involved in various sundry uh, shenanigans. And, of course, the episode you cite – also ends up being uh, an element in the in in the narrative as it unfolds because the Iranian revolution of 1979 uh from the point of view of the Iranian revolutionaries was inspired in some respects by their uh, not only their desire to get rid of of the shah but their determination to get rid of the of the american presence in iran and influence in iran which they perceived, whatever we think, what they perceived to be utterly uh, nefarious. So, yes, that's also part of the story. Yeah, and another footnote, uh, while the United States was supporting, and you point this out in your book, while the United States was supporting Saddam during the Iran-Iraq War, it uh, somewhat incoherently was also uh, selling arms to Iran. Well, not not only somewhat incoherently, <laughs> utterly incoherently. Uh, I mean, the reason that's that's important to remember that, I, I think, is that is a prime illustration of 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 the absence of any strategic clarity with regard to purpose. I think one of the reasons I might have a hard time selling this idea of a war for the greater Middle East and that links a whole laundry list of military enterprises, one of the reasons I'll have a hard time is because people have become accustomed to simply seeing every one of these episodes as kind of a, a standalone proposition, whether it's peacekeepers in Lebanon or, or bombing Libya or humanitarian intervention in Somalia or going back time and again to Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, where we, we have become conditioned to think of them as distinct episodes. The key argument I'm trying to make in the book is that only when we acknowledge that they are part of a larger enterprise, can we then assess the extent of our failure? And when you cite things like the Iran-Contra affair, where, where, where Ronald Reagan is illegally providing weapons to the Iranians, who, while they're calling us the great Satan, at the same time that we're supporting Saddam Hussein against Iran, that's a classic illustration of the absence of any clear thinking by the people in Washington. Or is it Metternichian balance of power taken to an ultimate uh, extreme? Gosh, if if you know if it were that, even I mean, I I might say isn't isn't that terribly cynical? Uh, but I don't. It, it, their their thinking did not rise to the level of sophistication uh, that invites a comparison with uh, with Metternich. <laughs> okay, I, I was just floating that as a trial balloon. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you sum up the um, the history of what you call the first Gulf War by saying uh, it began with a mix of cynicism and betrayal. It ended with an atrocity. Can you just uh, briefly fill us in on what those two incidents were that bookended the, the Iran-Iraq war from the United States perspective? Well, we began to support Saddam Hussein against Iran as soon as it became apparent that Saddam's expectations of a quick, easy victory uh, weren't going weren't to pan out. Uh, and in, within the Reagan administration, there was great fear uh, that Iran, indeed, might emerge triumphant and therefore dominant uh, in the Persian Gulf. So we began tilt in favor of, of Iraq in a variety of ways, initially providing uh, intelligence, uh, providing uh, 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 so-called dual-use technologies, turning a blind eye when Saddam, when Saddam went shopping for weapons uh, th- throughout the West, letting all that letting all that happen. Uh, but the the key episode that then be- begins to in- in- engage us directly military was when Saddam Hussein's military, his air force, uh, attacked the USS Stark. Uh, we had. Be begun to have a larger naval presence in the Persian Gulf as the Iran-Iraq War evolved. Uh, Saddam's Air Force uh, uh, hits a U.S. warship with two Exocet missiles, kills a bunch of Americans, wounds a bunch of Americans, cripples the ship, <laughs> and within 24 hours, the Reagan administration blames Iran uh, for this this Iraqi attack. And so the Iraqi attack on the Stark becomes the pretext for beginning a small but not insignificant maritime campaign against Iran. Basically, the aim of the campaign was to make it difficult for Iran to uh, interfere with uh, shipping of oil in the Persian Gulf, uh, which would, of course, then benefit benefit Iraq. So that campaign is a tactical success. I mean, our Navy against the Iranian Navy, not exactly much of a contest. Mm -hmm. But then it culminates... In the second atrocity, the second atrocity that uh, a U.S. naval warship, the USS Vincennes, Vincennes uh, shoots down uh, an Iranian Airbus, uh, killing all crew and passengers aboard. Civilians. Uh, absolutely civilians. This is, this is a civilian commercial airliner on a planned civilian route with an approved flight plan. Uh, the American authorities lie. Uh, claiming that uh, the uh, that the airplane was descending in the direction of the warship when in fact it was gaining in altitude, uh, claiming that it had violated the fl- flight plan, uh, and and claiming also that the American warship was in international waters when in fact the warship was within Iranian territorial waters. So that it was an atrocity. Uh, we didn't apologize, um, and and of course we Americans. Uh, have tended to forget this episode, which happened oh way back in the 1980s. Uh, but from a point of view of, of understanding the historical evolution of uh, evolution of this entire uh, uh, chapter, it, it, maybe we ought to recognize that the Iranians haven't forgot uh, that that the Iranians have grudges against us, just as we have grudges against them. Uh, for example, with regard to the hostage crisis. Just to um Finish up with the 1980s. Uh, there was the incident of the uh, U.S. Marines in Lebanon that you alluded to a moment ago. Um, how did that fit into all of this? 
Well, mine is a military narrative. That is to say, it's a military history. It's a history of, of unfolding military events. And the first such event, really, is the uh, hostage rescue mission undertaken by Carter in April 1980, which, of course, uh, ended in complete failure. Indeed, the failure occurred even before the plan itself unfolded. Uh, when when Reagan became president, uh, in the wake of an Israeli invasion of Lebanon, 1982, uh, that utterly destabilized Lebanon, uh, the Reagan administration decided that the United States had an interest in trying to restore peace and stability. And to do that, they sent a uh, basically a reinforced battalion of Marines to be, quote unquote, peacekeepers, uh, with the initial notion that the American presence in and of itself would sufficiently diffuse things, uh, ensure the separation of Israeli and Lebanese uh, uh, and, and, and uh, PLO uh, forces, that things would, would calm down. That turned out not to be the case. <clears throat> and indeed, the longer the Marines stayed, the more they were actually drawn into this uh, was both a, a Lebanese civil war and an Israeli occupation were drawn into it as uh, as combatants. Uh, and that then created the circumstances which culminated in the October 1983 uh, terrorist attack on the Marine uh, compound that, that, that killed, uh, I think it was 214 <clears throat> uh, uh, Americans. Reagan thereafter saying, it's time for us to get the hell out of Dodge. Uh, the significance, I think, of that uh, in the larger, in the context of the larger story is, mm-hmm. once again, what's the purpose? How does, what, what are we trying to do? There was no clear understanding of what we were trying to do that made any sense in, in, with regard to the specifics that existed uh, on the ground. And the second thing that matters is that whether Reagan uh, supporters want to admit it or not, in the, in the aftermath of the bombing, he cut and run. Uh, and that sends a signal to our adversaries. You know, if you're going to go in and, and, and then the at, at first time you take some serious losses, you're going to say, well, I'm out of here. Whether you like it or not, you're sending signals to people like Osama bin Laden or other militants that that suggest that the United States doesn't have real uh, staying power. In answer to the question, what the heck were we doing this for, which could be asked about so many of these military ventures that we've been involved in in the greater Middle East, uh, we go back to the Carter Doctrine, which was uh, a reaction to the oil embargo and your analysis is that uh, most of this stuff was, at least in the in the instant, uh, designed to preserve access to the to the oil of the Middle East via the the free passage through the Persian Gulf. Well, you know, it was in in a an immediate and concrete sense. That is to say, uh, at the outset, uh, the war for the Greater Middle East was a war for oil. But my argument is that even from the outset, if not uh, clearly articulated, it was about much more. Uh, It was about uh, affirming our uh, self-image as the dominant power in the world, not simply dominant in a military sense, but but dominant in in an ideological sense. There is a deep-seated it's really an, uh, this is an, this is the part of American exceptionalism. There's a deep-seated conviction, uh, certainly widely held in our political establishment, but also wide, widely held among 
ordinary Americans, that we define the future of humankind, that our values, our arrangements, our institutions, whether we can call it democracy using kind of a shorthand term, but it's much more than that. The American way of life determines the way the world is going. And events in 1979, citing the Iranian Revolution as a, as a good example, but a multitude of events since, particularly in the Islamic world, challenge that notion, uh, challenge that notion that we define the future. And I think uh, psychologically, uh, there's, a, there's an enormous reluctance on the part of Americans, and again, I would emphasize, particularly Americans in the political establishment, to, to give up this claim to our specialness, our chosenness. There's a great reluctance to take on board the possibility that while we certainly are a great power, that maybe we are simply one nation among many in the long course of, course of history. Uh, and so many of the efforts under, and I, I think this is in spades true after, after 9-11, George W. Bush is, is president and, and, and it immediately responds to the 9-11 attacks by, by saying on national television, look, we have faced this kind of adversary before. This, this is the equivalent of the hateful ideologies of the 20th century. This is Nazism. This is, this is communism. And just as we destroyed those challenges, we will destroy this one. That is to say, we will demonstrate through the use of military power that we define the future. And I think at, at root, uh, that really has been one of the driving considerations in this, in, in this entire enterprise, to, to, to affirm, to validate uh, American exceptionalism. And unfortunately, uh, very few of the military outcomes that we have been able to achieve support that notion. I mean, at, at the present moment, where where we look at Iraq, I mean, in my narrative, we're now in the fourth Gulf War. You know, the first one was 80 to 88. The second Gulf War was going after Saddam with Desert Storm. The third, the third Gulf War was the war of 2003 to 2011. Lo and behold, here we are again, uh, once again involved in another Gulf War uh, that may or may not end, end in a success operationally. But when you take those four Gulf Wars together, it sure the heck doesn't look like we're making a lot of progress in bringing harmony or democracy or even order to to that place, which really is the the focal point or the nexus of the war for the greater Middle East going back to 1980. It seems that uh, up till 9-11, the, the, um, the priority for the United States in addressing the greater Middle East was stability. And then following 9-11 uh, and the uh, assumption of power by uh, the people around George W. Bush, uh, the idea became to transform this area. That, that they, there were speeches made in which Bush uh, explicitly denounced the preservation of stability as a worthwhile right. goal. Yeah. I mean, I, I think this is tremendously important. I mean, there are... Bush is a very divisive figure in the eyes of uh, of, of many Americans, and I, I believe that there will be many uh, of our fellow citizens who would dismiss uh, Bush's freedom and democracy rhetoric, his so-called freedom agenda, as completely, totally uh, cynical. I, I don't I don't believe that's true. Uh, I believe that 
uh, Bush, who who prior to 9-11 had advertised himself as a realist who is in favor of what he called a humble mm-hmm. foreign policy, mm-hmm. that uh, that that he underwent uh, uh, that 9-11 was a was a transformative experience. And as a genuinely religious person, uh, and we're getting here into like, you know, psychologizing, mm-hmm. uh, but as a genuinely religious person, I think he turned back to matters of faith to help him understand what had occurred and what he should do next. And and that found expression in Bush becoming a new Woodrow Wilson. I mean, some, somebody who now articulated and if you read his speeches i mean they're in many respects they're quite quite eloquent uh united states as the agent to bring freedom to the oppressed the united states as a country that would no longer give the islamic world a pass on things like democratic practice and uh rights for women uh so he was persuaded that he that he was called upon to take this undertake this uh, transformative mission. And unfortunately, he and those around him, people like uh, Vice President Cheney, Secretary of Defense uh, Rumsfeld, Deputy Secretary of Defense Wolfowitz, they were also persuaded that American military supremacy was unchallengeable, that, that we possessed the military capability to bring about this kind of political, ideological, and cultural uh, transformation, and and that's what the uh, the third Gulf War, the Gulf War of 2003-2011, was all about. That was their attempt to to validate this what what American military supremacy properly employed could do. They thought it was going to be an easy win. They thought it was going to be quick. They thought that the, that, that 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 making Iraq into some kind of a functioning liberal democracy was going to happen rather quickly, and they were utterly, totally, and completely wrong. So instead of a short, victorious war, we ended up with an immensely long, costly war that created havoc in its wake. Uh, Following up on that, there is still a lively debate in this country about the role of the surge and um, whether this... I I talked at the beginning about how we keep hearing these echoes, and and, uh, at the end of the Vietnam War, uh, proponents of the war uh, had a theory that we could have won it if we hadn't been fighting with our hands, one of our hands tied behind our back. Right. And uh, we hear it again about the surge won the war, and then uh, we withdrew, and all the the place went to hell. That's right. Obama Obama gave away the victory. Yeah. Is the, is the argument which right. I think is utterly totally bogus. So what was uh, the surge, and what was its effect? Two two points about the surge, and the, and the first one is to appreciate the extent to which when uh, Bush embarked upon the surge, which he didn't remember, remember he fired Rumsfeld. Mm -hmm. He fired the architect of what was supposed to be the War of Liberation. And he replaced the then commander in Iraq, General Casey, with with General Petraeus. Those changes alone showed that Bush was, in effect, abandoning the expectations that had informed the Iraq War in the first place. That is to say, the freedom agenda, so-called freedom agenda, was now defunct. 
and that needs to be understood. The second point about the surge is what it did was to, and, and, and this is not a trivial achievement, what it did was to very substantially reduce the level of violence, which it did in part uh, by the uh, shrewd application of counterinsurgency uh, methods, did in part because the additional presence of U.S. forces who who undertook an exceedingly difficult task and did well. Probably most significant, significant was the so-called Sunni awakening, that is to say that we, we paid for Sunnis to put on their arms or even come down to our side because the Sunnis, for their own reasons, had decided that they did not wish to see al-Qaeda in Iraq prevail in their country. So for all these reasons put together, the, the level of violence... Uh, uh, is reduced appreciably, but, and here's the, here's the point to emphasize, the insurgency had not been defeated. The insurgency continued. There was no conclusive victory. And so once the withdrawal occurred, and let us remember that Bush himself had committed his administration to that withdrawal, simply that Obama followed through, once the U.S. withdrew, that created conditions for the insurgency then to erupt once again and put us on the path to where we are. So the notion that you know the, the surge is some kind of a victory that should stand alongside uh, Gettysburg or or, or Normandy uh, is utterly absurd. There is a, a moment where you point out what what is fairly well known now um, that. 15 of the 19 hijackers on 9-11 were Saudis. And uh, you say that the Bush administration treated that question as off-limits. Um, it seems to me you're suggesting more than you say there. Well, I don't, I don't mean to be. I mean, I, I mean I, well, maybe I, maybe, <laughs> maybe I am. But, but well, there the, are other people – pardon me. There are other people who would take that a lot farther. Let's put it that way. Okay. The, the – uh, I, I am suggesting uh, that the rather lazy uh, assumption that the Saudis are our friends, that that these are allies, these are this 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 is a nation with whom we share uh, values in common, uh, is 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 misleading. What about interests in common? Well, let's crank back to 1980. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, we got interests in common. And the interest in common is they want to keep uh, pumping oil. And given our energy situation at that point, the Americans keep want to importing that oil so we can put it in our, our, our cars so the American way of life won't be compromised. But now let's fast forward to 2016. Well, the energy situation has radically changed. I mean, many of us, me included, uh, would certainly like to see us begin to move to a you know post uh, uh carbon-based fuels economy. Uh, but we haven't in particular gone that far. We still need oil. We still all want our, we still want our cars. We still don't want to uh, make any of the sacrifices Jimmy Carter called upon us to make. But guess what? We don't need Saudi oil anymore. We, we, we are, for all practical purposes, energy self-sufficient, relying on sources within uh, the Western Hemisphere. So if, if there's a place worth fighting for, there's a place where where we should be willing to send Americans to die uh, on behalf of energy security, then we should be sending them to Canada or to Venezuela, uh, where probably we'd have 
better luck. Uh, rather than maintain this notion that dates back to 1980, that somehow the American way of life is intimately tied to our access to Saudi oil. Now, let me emphasize, that doesn't mean that Saudi oil is globally unimportant. It's, it is globally important. It's important to Europe. It's important to the Japanese. Uh, but quite frankly, if it's important to the Europeans, then let's let the Europeans start to pony up uh, with a little bit of a larger commitment to maintaining security in the region rather than outsourcing it to the United States, which as a practical matter, what, what, what's been happening? Now, if I, was, if I was a European, I'd be happy uh, for the rules of the game as, as they have evolved to, to continue. But I'm not a European, and I think in many respects we're getting our pocket picked. I don't think there are going to be such a thing as Europeans very much longer, but that's just Well, me. that could be too. <laughs> um, going back to this, as we as we come to near the end of this conversation, the recurring themes through this whole adventure, and you you keep pointing out at various junctures the degree to which American policymakers and decision-makers and military uh decision makers seem to be oblivious to issues of faith uh, and history in the area of the greater Middle East. Well, I mean, uh, you know, I could cite myself uh, as a, as an example. Back in 1980, uh, when this had, I was an army officer uh, at, at the time, uh, my world uh, was defined by the by the Cold War uh, militarily. Uh, my focal point was on the possibility of a war with the Soviet Union, uh, didn't think about uh, unconventional war, certainly didn't think about the possibility of war uh, in, in the Islamic world, and quite frankly, didn't think about what that world was all about, how, how what we call the modern Middle East came into existence at the end of World War I as a function of Europe, reckless European uh, imperialists who thought they could carve up the Ottoman Empire uh, to suit themselves. Uh, my knowledge of Islam, which today is not is not great, was for all practical purposes non-existent back in 1980. And I have to say that I, I doubt if my ignorance uh, was uh, that much less than the ignorance of people sitting around the National Security Council advising President Carter and then President Reagan and so on about about what we ought to do. So that has been a huge historical blindside. I mean, I, I, I think it was uh, Am, it was uh, Ambrose Bierce, I think, who once said that uh, that 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 war is what the United States uses as the vehicle to learn about the rest of the world, <laughs> and and certainly as a consequence of the of the various military interventions, large and small. Uh, since 1980, we've now become to learn a lot about the geography, about the people, about the religion, the culture, uh, the history. And, you know, it makes you want to weep uh, that we didn't have that kind of a of, a, of an understanding of the region uh, back when we began this enterprise. But isn't this the, the ultimate echo of Vietnam? Um, uh, it, we learned during the Vietnam era when the we had these teach-ins where people who academics basically who were expert in the in Southeast Asia and its history uh, pointed out that uh, the version of Vietnam's role in the Cold War as being a pawn of China was uh, 
at odds with the actual history of, of the movement as a nationalist movement fighting against French colonialism, and that we were basically the inheritors of the French colonials, not of the, not of the side of freedom. And, and uh, we're equally, or the policymakers, you suggest, are equally ignorant about our role in taking over the British colonial role in the Middle East. Uh, I, there's, I, there's no question about it. Uh, you know, uh, I've I've long thought that you know we 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 Americans uh, continue to have this uh, sentimental attitude with regard to uh, Great Britain that I think somehow is traceable to these ancient memories of Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt standing arm in arm facing down the the Nazis. Uh, but <laughs> I think there is a great book to be written that really explains the contribution that Britain has made to creating such a goddamn mess in the world <laughs> uh, that is the direct uh, consequence both of British imperialism but also of of British decline you know when they when they had enough of India they 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 walked away from India uh, when they had enough of the of the Palestine mandate uh, they walked away uh, from from that part of the world and uh, and the and the consequences have not been pretty. Now I, don't, I mean I don't I don't want to overstate that. It's not like Great Britain is Britain is responsible for all the world's uh, ills, but 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 there is a a a story that is complex, and the the habit that many Americans have of wanting to see history as a as a morally uplifting tale, uh, simply doesn't doesn't get us very far with regard to that part of the world. I have the name for that book: "The Great Skedaddle." Yeah, that is exactly right. The Great Skedaddle. <laughs> <laughs> Putting it in, a, in an Americanism. Um, well, I, I've I've been uh, amazed by this book and by breach of trust as well, because I think uh, you touch on these these issues that are. Uh, haunting us, um, and apparently uh, uh, things we we just can't shake uh, in terms of our habits of mind and in terms of the way uh, our officials run our business. Um, I, I, you don't uh, boast any um, credentials as a predictor, but what do you see? What do you see? Where do you see this going? Well, I'm going nowhere. I mean, I think I think uh, we are. Uh, Events are drifting, uh, uh, and 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 the American people continue to sort of slumber. Uh, I, I've concluded, I think, my last three books <clears throat> on a depressing note that says, "Boy, we're really in a deep shit, <laughs> uh, and and it ain't going to get any better until the American people wake up, pay attention, and start demanding change." Uh, and and that doesn't seem likely to happen. I mean, I, I guess one could argue in the present political season, oh, they've woke, waken up, they're demanding change. Uh, but if if waking up and demanding change is uh, Donald Trump, uh, then I, I can't say that that, that uh, makes me very optimistic about what's going to happen next. Mm. Uh, Andrew Basevich, uh, author of America's War for the Greater Middle East, Military History, and uh, previously of breach of trust. Thank you so much for spending time with me today. Oh, thank you.
Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations over NPR worldwide throughout Europe. The USN 440 cable system in Japan on the Mighty 104 in Berlin on Soho Radio in London. Around the world via the Internet at two different locations, live and archived whenever you want at harryshare.com and kcsn.org. Around the world via the American Forces Network. Available for your smartphone through stitcher.com. Available as a free podcast from SoundCloud, Sideshow Network, TuneIn.com, iTunes, and WWNO.org. And be just like rethinking a 50-year war, if you'd agree to join with me then. Would you already? Thank you very much. Uh-huh. Tip of the show, chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and exile and Hawaii desks. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson at WWNO in New Orleans. Thanks also to Paul Kahlo at WBUR in Boston and Mike Gilbert at Swelltone in New Orleans for production help for today's broadcast. Playlist of the music heard here on, and your opportunity, think of it as an opportunity to purchase Cars I Talk t-shirts, all at harryshearer.com. I'm on Twitter, at the Harry Shearer, a live show, up to the minute, next week, right here on the show. The show comes to Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans flagship station of the Changes Easy Radio Network. So long from deep inside your audio device of choice. <laughs>